When my parents pass away, Lord willing, many, many years from now, the the settling of their estate should be a pretty straightforward affair. They possess few real assets. They have little debt. They have only two children. My sister and I are sole heirs of our parents' estate, which will be divided equally between us. Therefore, when they pass away, we will liquidate their assets, settle whatever debts they may have, and divide what remains. My sister and I get along well, so there won't be any arguments or hard feelings or legal issues. Others are not so fortunate. Either their parents owned many assets spread out over a complicated array of investments and property that will have to be dealt with and settled, or they they leave behind tremendous debt, or they had multiple marriages and a blended family of stepsons and stepdaughters who don't get along well, and all of them are going to be vying for their share of the estate. Those situations can be an absolute nightmare. Today's passage employs this metaphor of family estate law, which could be far more complex in the first century Roman world than it often is today, at least in situations like mine. The image Paul employs is that of a large Roman household. And in such a household, there was the father who was the undisputed head. He was called in Latin the paterfamilias. He owned and he ruled with absolute authority over everything in his household. Then there were his children, okay, the, the natural-born sons who by birthright stood to inherit their father's estate. Their shares usually apportioned out according to their birth order. Next, there were the servants or the slaves who had no rights of inheritance. Indeed, they had no rights at all. They belonged entirely to the paterfamilias, to the father, the head of the household. But then there was a fourth category in the Roman world. Those who became sons by adoption. Usually what would happen is that the father would adopt one of his slaves and transfer them from the realm of slavery into the realm of sonship. He may do this for a number of reasons. Either he may not have any natural-born sons, or maybe his natural-born sons are of such a character that he has disowned them and disinherited them, and so he, he raises up a slave to the status of son in their place in order that he might give the estate to them. This adoption of which Paul speaks was a uniquely Roman legal institution whereby a father could adopt a child and confer on him all the rights and privileges which ordinarily would belong only to the natural born sons. That's what lies behind the background or lies in the background of today's passage where Paul begins in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. So this is the way the metaphor works. In this metaphor, God is the father. He's the paterfamilias. He's the head and the ruler, the absolute sovereign of his household. Jesus, then, is his one and only natural-born son, the only legitimate heir of the father's estate, the only one who possesses the inheritance in the kingdom by birthright. The servants, or slaves, are unbelievers. And I think Paul particularly has in view those Jewish unbelievers who are still slaves of the law. They're serving God out of fear rather than out of love. And then the believers, those in whom the Spirit dwells, are the adopted sons of God. God's heart is so big and expansive, and his wealth and his resources are so abundant and infinite that he desires to share his estate with innumerable adoptive children, even though the estate rightfully belongs only to his one only begotten son. God's purpose, according to verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, is that those whom he adopts into his family would thus be conformed into the image of his son, and that his son would then become the firstborn among many brethren, many adopted sons and daughters. In other words, God is expanding his family. Now, the main point of this passage is that God will give a share of his son's inheritance to every child whom he adopts. And what is this inheritance? Well, we're going to return to answer that question in the weeks to come. But for now, I'm going to tell you that what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the inheritance of the saints falls into three general categories. Here is what the adopted sons and daughters of God stand to inherit. Number one, the sons of God will inherit the earth. Romans 4.13. That is the new creation. Second, the sons of God will inherit a resurrection of glory in which they will be glorified in both body and soul. Romans 8.17 and 18. That's what Paul means when he says we will be glorified with him if we suffer with him. And third, the sons of God will inherit eternal fellowship with God himself. Now, under normal circumstances, children enter into their father's inheritance upon their father's death. But God is undying and he is eternal. Therefore, says Paul, the children of God, the adopted sons and daughters of God, will enter into their inheritance on a set day, the last day, at the return of Christ when, Romans eight nineteen, the sons of God are revealed in all of their splendor and glory. When their bodies are redeemed, verse 23, and they enter into into this everlasting glory, verse 21. So the main question provoked by this morning's passage is, are you a slave or a son? Now I know you're all in the household. I know that you're all in the household. I know that you have some relationship to God. Otherwise, you would not be here this morning. You're in the household, but slaves are in the household as well as sons. But slaves 
are not in the will. They will not inherit the Father's kingdom. So the question you need to ask yourself is, is my relationship to God one of slavery and fear or one of sonship and love? And how would you know? Well, in verses 14 to 17, Paul gives us three evidences that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. First, we find in verse 14 that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the children of God are led by the Spirit. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time on what it means to be led by the Spirit. We talked about that at length last week. In fact, it's been the theme of the last two sermons from the previous verses in Romans chapter 8. I'm simply going to remind you this morning of what we saw in those messages. First, to be led by the Spirit is the same as to walk according to the Spirit, is the same as to live by the Spirit. All of those phrases that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 4, verse 5, verse 14, all refer to the same reality, the same way of life, a life lived in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power in order to live in conscious obedience to the Spirit's command. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit, to live in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power in order to live in conscious obedience to the Spirit's command. In other words, I take verse 14 of Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, as the summation of everything that Paul has said in verses 1 to 13 about life in the Spirit. Second, in verses 1 to 13, we observed that the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to two distinct yet related activities, one positive and one negative. Positively, Paul says, the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to walk in love, and thereby, verse 4, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Verse 4, Paul says, in order that, okay, all of this saving work of Christ in verses 1 to 3 has been accomplished in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we noted from Romans 13, 8 8 through 10, that Paul understands walking in love to be the righteous requirement of the law. He says there, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to rely upon His strength and upon His power in order to love and serve others as an expression of their love for God. So how do you know if you're a child of God? Well, Do you consciously rely upon the Spirit's power in order to give of your time and your energy and your resources to give of yourself in love and service to others? Is that a description of the way that you live your life? Do you live your life in the service of love by the Spirit's power? Or do you only love and serve others at your own convenience and only out of your own abundance? Are you only there for your brothers and sisters in Christ when you aren't tired or busy or inconvenienced by their problems? There's an account in Mark's gospel that I I, I think gets to the, 
to the main issue in whether we're actually loving people by the power of the Spirit or just loving people when it's convenient for us. In Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is in Jerusalem during the week of Passover, he's in the temple, he's sitting opposite the treasury, and he's watching people as they drop money into the offering boxes. And Mark records that there were a lot of rich people who were putting in large sums, but then a poor widow came along and she put in two small copper coins amounting to only a penny. And Mark 12, 43 says that Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. Notice that, out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. I take that and I relate it to this question And I say, those who walk according to the Spirit in order to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, the law of love, are those who rely upon the Spirit's power to love and to serve out of their poverty and not merely out of their abundance. They serve not merely when they have the time to serve, the money to serve, the emotional resources to serve. They serve when love demands it which requires that they access by faith the Spirit's resources to enable them to serve in love. The Apostle John reminds us that love is practical. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Note this. Love, some people say love is not a feeling, it's an action. Or love is not an action, it's a feeling. They're both wrong, it's both. Love is a feeling and an action. If you do not, or you do not love if you feel no affection. If you're just serving out of duty, that's not love. Neither do you love if your affection never leads to action. So, wrapping all this up, positively then, the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to rely upon the Spirit's power to walk in love and thereby fulfill the law out of their poverty rather than out of their abundance. Negatively, the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to rely upon the Spirit's power to put sin to death. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to be actively engaged in making war upon indwelling sin. The Spirit has convinced them deeply that they cannot love both sin and Jesus. They cannot indulge the lusts of the flesh and follow Christ. The Spirit has led them to take seriously the words of Jesus that if they would enter the kingdom of God, they must make a violent assault upon their indwelling sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. You want to know who the children of God are? The children of the God are the ones who actually take Jesus seriously and actually do that. Unlike most of the church, who sort of wink at those words of Jesus and continue to love and embrace their sin. The children of God are those who are led by the Spirit of God to make a violent assault upon that sin which would keep them from the kingdom. And they take these aggressive measures to kill their sin by the Spirit. That is, relying upon the Spirit's power to overwhelm the desires of the sinful flesh with a superior satisfaction and love for Christ. In other words, they don't start. The children of God do not attack sin from the outside in, but rather from the inside out at the level of their desires and delight. The aim of holiness is not merely to restrain the flesh so that you spend your entire life trying not to do what it is you really want to do. That's not holiness. The aim of holiness is to change your affections such that you begin to want what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And that transformation only happens by faith in the promise of the word through the power of the spirit. So, the first evidence that you are a child of God and therefore an heir of God is that you have the spirit at work within you leading you to walk in spirit-wrought love and leading you to put to death sin in spirit-wrought power. The second evidence that you are a child of God and therefore an heir of God comes from verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All right, I think it's best to follow this. Is, you're not going to hear me say this very much, so listen closely. I think the NIV gets it right here. They capitalize both instances of spirit in this verse, and I think that's right. I think that what Paul intends us to understand is this. You did not receive the spirit, capital S, as a spirit of slavery leading you back into fear. Okay? That's not how you receive the spirit. Rather, you received the Spirit as a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's not that there's two types of spirit in this verse. You didn't receive the Spirit as a spirit of slavery, leading to fear. You received the Spirit as a spirit of adoption, leading you to cry out, Abba, Father. So we find in verse 15 that the children of God have fellowship with their adoptive father. And this fellowship, I think, has three important elements. First, one who has fellowship with God as a son to a father has an inward sense that God really loves him. To have the spirit of adoption is to have, to some degree, an assurance of the father's love. That assurance will wax and wane 
dependent upon a number of different circumstances, but to some degree, they know that their father loves them. Now, I get this from the fact that Paul says, we did not receive the spirit as a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And that word fear triggers a connection in my mind to a very important passage in 1 John chapter 4, where John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And note this, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Notice that John sets up fear and love in an antithetical, inversely proportionate relationship. To the extent that you fear, that's to that extent that you don't feel loved. To the extent that you feel loved, to that extent, you're not fearing. To the degree that you fear the judgment of God, to that degree you are not perfected in love. But to the degree that you have a well-grounded confidence in the day of judgment, to that degree you are perfected in love. So when Paul says that we didn't receive the spirit as a spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, in other words, fear that God's judgment and wrath abides on us, that he really is secretly angry and vindictive and vengeful towards us, he must by implication mean, therefore, that we have received the spirit as a spirit of adoption leading to assurance of God's love toward us. And I think it was the spirit-wrought assurance of God's fatherly love towards us that he mentioned back in Romans 5.5 when he says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the spirit whom he has given to us. So one of the marks of the children of God is that by the spirit, they have an inward sense that God loves them. That God approves of them. They have an inward sense that on the day of judgment, God will not condemn them for their sins, but rather will claim them as his own. Your assurance in this world will likely never be perfect because your in this world will not be perfected in love. But I'm not sure how you can have saving faith in Christ and have zero assurance of God's love. Otherwise, what are you actually trusting? Second, one who has fellowship with God as a son to a father has the inward sense that they have the right to approach God. So to have the spirit of adoption is to have, to some degree the assurance that you can come to God in prayer and he won't turn you away. He will receive you. He will hear you. He will answer you. He will respond in accordance with your good and his glory. 
I get this from the second half of verse 15, where Paul says, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So one of the spirit's activities within us is that he is, he is impelling us to cry out to God, not out of some vague hope that he will hear, but out of confidence that he will hear. When my children have a need, they come to me. When Abby has a math problem or Ben has a science question or Isaac wants to tell me something about some lizard that he read about in his book or Susanna fell off her bike and she needs to be comforted, they come to me in confidence. Something in them knows That when they come to me, they won't be turned away. Something in them knows that they have the right to approach me. Why? By virtue of their relationship to me. They have the right to come to me. They have the right to demand my affection and my attention because they are children and I am their father. The spirit of adoption is is assuring you of that right. He is assuring you that you can cry out to God in your time of need and you will be received, you will be heard, you will be answered. Finally, the one who has fellowship with God as a son to a father has an inward sense of intimacy with God. To have the spirit of adoption is to have to some degree the knowledge that God is not just your sovereign ruler or your righteous judge, but your loving father. This comes, of course, from the words which the Spirit impels the children of God to cry out. Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term which means Father, but it's it's not a formal term. It's an intimate term. It was only used in the home. It wasn't a sappy term, but it is one that denotes affection. The Jews did not use this form of address in prayer to God. That is, until Jesus came along. It was Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, Our Father. Any guess what word that is in Aramaic? Abba. It was Jesus who who joined Abba and Father in compound in the Garden of Gethsemane. Therefore, according to one commentator, in crying out, Abba, Father, the believer not only gives voice to his or her consciousness of belonging to God as his child, but also to having a status comparable to that of Jesus himself. In ascribing to Christians and dwelt by the Spirit the use of the same term in addressing God, Paul shows that Christians have a relationship to God that is like, though of course not exactly like, Christ's own relationship to the Father. In adopting us, God has taken no half measures. We're not second-class sons. Rather, we have been made full members of the family and partakers of all the privileges belonging to the members of that family. So the children of God are marked by an inward sense of fellowship with God. They have received the spirit of adoption, and by that spirit they know That God loves them. They know that they can approach him and cry out to him and they won't be turned away. And they know God not as the distant ruler, but as an intimate father who is near to them. 
The third evidence that you are a child of God and therefore an heir of God comes from verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Paul's language here is straightforward. It's clear. Unless we suffer with Christ, we will not be glorified with Christ. That's how that if functions in this verse. I think for Paul writing to the Roman church, suffering with Christ had primary reference to enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel. I think that's what's in Paul's mind specifically for the Roman church. Okay? What he's saying is a sure mark of a true child of God and therefore a true heir of God is that they are willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. They don't bail on Jesus. They don't sell out Jesus in order to save their life. They endure through persecution and then are glorified with Christ. Now, you remember the context in which this letter was written is probably the year 57, 58 AD. Paul is probably in the city of Corinth, nearing the end of his first missionary journey, getting ready to sail and make the journey back towards Jerusalem, where his very presence in the temple is going to cause a riot. He will then be arrested. He'll be taken to Caesarea Philippi to stand trial. Two years later, he will find himself in Rome under house arrest. He will spend another two years in custody in Rome before being released for a period of a few years. Eventually, around the year 66 AD, Paul will be arrested again, this time in the the heat of the Neronian persecutions, and he will be beheaded in Rome in the year 67. So Paul was a man who suffered with Christ, and he's writing to a church that would soon know what it means to suffer with Christ as well. But, I don't think suffering with Christ in Romans 8.17 only has reference to persecution. I think it also has reference to any form of suffering that presents us with the temptation to unbelief and to apostasy. I think suffering with Christ has reference to any trial that presents us with the same choice Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do I say, not thy will, but my will be done? Or do I say, not my will, but thy will be done? I think that when a believer gets cancer, and instead of growing embittered against God and, and shaking his fists toward heaven and shouting, why have you treated me like this or even denying the faith altogether? Rather, when he receives that cancer as the good providence of God, he trusts God for the strength to endure and he perseveres in the hope of resurrection. That is suffering with Christ. Or when tragedy strikes When a loved one dies, when a marriage ends, when our kids go astray, when you lose your job, whatever kind of suffering comes upon you, instead of getting angry and instead of getting anxious, you remain steadfast, trusting yourself to God's providence and his promise, hoping 
walking in that glory to be revealed. When you persevere in faith through trials, that is suffering with Christ. Any suffering, any suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, relational, any suffering that brings with it the temptation to not believe God's promise that I will turn all things together for good to those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Any suffering that brings with it the temptation not to believe God, if endured in faith, is suffering with Christ. You don't have to have a gun to your head in order to deny Jesus. You just have to have a cancer diagnosis. You don't have to have a gun to your head in order to fail to confess Christ. You just have to have your life, your marriage, your children not turn out the way you thought it was going to. Paul is saying not just to the first century church at Rome, but to the 21st century middle class church in First Baptist Nixa, if you don't endure sufferings with Christ in faith, you'll not be glorified with him. Now, what license do I have to extend suffering, which I admit in this text, has primary reference to persecutions facing the church at Rome, what license do I have to connect that to any form of suffering that we face? Well, a lot. I think over and over and over again in the New Testament, it speaks of suffering as the the ordained path of every believer, which every Christian must tread in order to make it. Let me run through some verses for you. Paul writes to the Philippians, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Anyone to whom God grants the ability to believe, he also grants them the privilege of suffering. And to the Corinthians... 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Hey, do you have a share in Christ's abundance? Do you have a share in Christ's comfort? Then you also have a share in his sufferings. You can't divorce one from the other. Or to the Thessalonians, let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we are destined for this. Destined for what? You are destined for affliction. Or to the Galatians. When Paul visited them, Luke records that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How are you going to enter the kingdom of God? Through many tribulations. The fact is that the entire New Testament resounds with this theme. God has established that the path to glory, the only one, leads through suffering. There is no other. 
Why? Because this is how God in his everlasting wisdom has chosen to sanctify his people. Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Every Christian must suffer with Christ if he is to be glorified with Christ. That is, every Christian must endure suffering with a patient and joyful faith if he is to receive the promised inheritance. Perseverance through suffering is the prerequisite to inheriting the kingdom. Which in no way implies that we merit our inheritance by sticking with it. It means rather that the essential mark of a true child of God who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is that they have within an infallible hope that endures through suffering, a patient and joyful faith that considers the sufferings of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. To be a Christian is to believe that. And to believe that is to persevere through sufferings. That's the key to suffering with Christ. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to sit in verses 17 and 18. And we're going to try to apply it to situations of suffering to say, how do I suffer with Christ when everything hurts and everything seems dark and dim? How do I persevere through this suffering in faith, nay, in joy? Verse 18 has the answer. It's because I have looked Beyond at the glory to come, and I have seen that that so vastly outweighs this, that this can't even be compared with that. A child of God suffers with Christ. That is, a child of God considers the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us, and on the strength of that consideration, he perseveres. Now, you'll note that I skipped over verse 16, which says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I did that on purpose. And here's why. I don't think the Spirit's testimony with our spirit is something that occurs in addition to these three evidences. I think it occurs through these three evidences. In other words... I don't think that what Paul refers to here as the testimony of the Spirit is something that occurs in a moment of existential bliss in your private prayer time or in a public worship service. Ordinarily. As if suddenly the Spirit overwhelms your spirit with waves of love and joy and assures you that you are a child of God. That happens And it's the experience of some, but it's not the experience of all. And the experience that Paul speaks of here, the testimony that Paul speaks of here, is an experience which every believer indwelt by the Spirit possesses. So John Murray writes that we are not to construe this witness of the Spirit as consisting in a direct propositional revelation to the effect, thou art a child of God. If that's what you think verse 16 is speaking of, you're wrong. 
You can go into your prayer closet day after day, week after week, year after year, and you may never hear a direct proposition to your soul, you are my child. Rather, the Spirit's testimony occurs as you are led by the Spirit to walk in love and to put to death sin. As you experience fellowship with the Father, knowing that He loves you. There is some subjective element to this testimony. And as you persevere through suffering in faith and in joy in Christ. That's why Paul puts hope on the very end. We rejoice in our sufferings because it produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope comes through persevering through suffering. So I think the testimony of the Spirit comes to us as we see the evidence of the Spirit's work in our heart and in our life. Let me walk through this with you. As we see the evidence of the Spirit's leadership, as we walk in love that we know we couldn't have produced on our own, as we kill sin that previously held us in bondage, indeed, as we begin to despise the sin that we once found alluring, This is the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we're a child of God. As we experience fellowship with the Father, as we come to know an inward sense of His affection for us, as we grow in our confidence that we can approach Him and He won't turn us away, as we experience His intimacy and nearness in prayer, this is the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are the children of God. And as we find ourselves suffering with Christ, not growing angry with God or with others, not becoming anxious or fearful, not losing our faith and our hope and our joy, but persevering through every trial and tribulation because we've considered that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us, this is the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the question that I leave you with this morning is, does the Spirit testify with you? Does He assure you, based upon these evidences, that you belong to Christ, that you're His child? If so, then you are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, and you stand to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. If not, you are still a slave and not a son. You are indeed associated with the father's household. You're here. But your name is not on the will. You still serve God out of fear of punishment or hope of reward, not out of love. And you need to be converted. You need to receive the Holy Spirit. You need to be adopted into God's family. You need to become a child of God. And you can. For as many as received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. To as many, whoever receives him, believes on his name, It's to them that God gives the right of adoption, the right to become the children of God, the right to have their name inscribed upon his will. So receive him. Receive Christ as your Savior and Lord and life and love. 
Receive him as your atoning sacrifice, which satisfies the debt of sin which you owed. Receive him as your only hope of righteousness by which you can stand before the Father. Receive him and believe on his name. Rest your sins upon him. Rest your hope upon him. Rest your fears upon him. Rest your life upon him. And you will receive the right to become a child of God. God will adopt you into his family. He will claim you as his own. He will inscribe your name on his will and testament as if you were a natural born son or daughter. And you, along with Christ and all the saints, will inherit the earth and with it everlasting glory. Indeed, you will inherit God himself. So receive him. 